yo, yo, it's your girl and boy CT. I'm Cindy Barnes. And I'm Travis Barnes. And we are the founders of the Overcomers Podcast. The Overcomers Podcast is designed to help you overcome adversity and live your dreams. Every week, we will be sharing stories of people who found their strength in their struggle. The Overcomers Podcast is sponsored by Journey 333. And that's a lot of threes, so let me tell you what it is. It's fitness, coaching, and nutrition. It is a place where we help you to look better, live better, and feel better, and it is mind, body, spirit. Today, we're going to help you get your mind right with our special guest. Hello, Overcomer Nation. Wow, I got a topic that is near and dear to my heart today. We're going to be talking with the co-founder of Social Imprints. That's a swag company. But this company hires and trains at-risk adults. And as you, co-founder Kevin McCracken, struggled with drug addiction, but was able to get clean and turn his life around in part by being given a fair chance. McCracken started as an administrative assistant with Ashbury Images, a screen printing and embroidery nonprofit. He excelled and quickly moved up the ranks at Ashbury, eventually becoming the company's general manager. Today, Kevin uses both his personal and professional experiences to provide fair chances to at-risk adults and produce socially responsible swag for the world's leading companies. For his expertise as a swag producer and social imprint social responsibility mission, McCracken has received numerous national and trade awards, including the Bank of America's Neighborhood Leader Award. When not working, Kevin enjoys being the host and producer of his own podcast, which I highly recommend that you visit, and it's called Death by Incarceration, and serves as a volunteer at the San Quentin State Prison providing resume critiquing, interviewing skills, and career coaching. Today, he lives with his wife and children in Mill Valley. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. I'm, I'm really happy to be here this morning and a great little chat before we started. Um, and, you know, thanks for going over the bio for everybody. I mean, I think uh, the more honest we are as uh, people in recovery, the more, you know, we, we can be attractions to those around us and let them know that it's okay, you know. Um, and as, as you probably know, and, and may have experienced the, the switch from, uh, active addiction, homelessness, uh, incarceration, um, trips to the hospital and, and detoxes, sometimes, uh, a little stay in the, uh, maybe the mental health part of the, uh, hospital, uh, to recovery isn't always easy. So, you know, I'm, I'm honest about it and said, I made, you know, I had slips and mistakes and problems early on that, uh, you know. I just wasn't quite ready when I first show, showed up. So, you know, and, and I think it's good for people to hear that. Like, you know, it's it's okay. We're human beings. You know, we aren't robots. We're not, you know, we're not um, recovery machines, so to speak. So, yeah. uh, you know, um, but again, I'm really glad to be here. And and what a great show you're running. I mean, well, thank you. Really thank highlighting you. people and their, their, you know, their, the opportunities they've taken to overcome, you know, great, you know, adversity in their lives. So. You know, thanks yeah. for having me on. Well, you know, Kevin, I, I'm glad that you started off uh, with that perspective because maybe what you learned faster than I did is that being vulnerable with people and sharing your story really helps because for a while, when I came home, I was carrying a scarlet letter. Um, and, you know, Overcomer Nation, if you're new to this podcast, uh, you can go to episode one uh, because, you know, my life started over after a decade of incarceration. But uh, I was so shy. I was so shy to, so scared. So shy is not even the word. Uh, scared to tell anybody about it because I'd make these great friends. And I'm like, oh, they wouldn't want to be my friend if they knew. Or 
or, you know, like I'd have customers and I'm like, oh, they wouldn't want to be coming here if they knew. And, and what I learned, and that's why it is the story of the Overcomers podcast, is that everybody has something to overcome. You may not have suffered from addiction or incarceration, but you've had some sort of adversity that makes you understand people do struggle, you know, so. Agreed. Uh, Agreed. And, and I Go think ahead. storytelling storytelling is, I mean, it's the, the, the most sort of universal art form. Um, all cultures tell stories. Uh, it's the way that we connect with each other. And I think when you're on, you know, platforms like Apple and, and Spotify, et cetera, you've got an opportunity to tell stories and humanize uh, individuals. And, you know, and we, you said when you got out, I mean, the I think the entire purpose of the, uh, you know, of incarceration, that system is to dehumanize people, to separate them from their families, their communities. You know, and that's the biggest, uh, the biggest loss, you know, I mean, along with how much all that costs each state, but, you know, we, we lose so much when we separate our communities and, and, you know, we have an opportunity to tell those stories and connect each other in a way that's really meaningful, you know, and I think that's the bottom line for me is how do I connect with those around me and, and what, what story am I telling now? You know, because my story is not didn't end with, you know, uh, sitting in county jail or detoxing or, you know, in an overdose or, you know, spending the rest of my life in prison. It, you know, the story has continued. And mm -hmm. so when we when we tell each other like this is, you know, what it was like for me, um, these are the steps I took to get to where I am now, which, you know, for me was, again, it was a twisting and winding road. Like I, there was no one answer. You know, I would go to, to 12 step meetings or I would go to therapy or I would go to, you know, see, you know, all sorts of different spiritual helpers and, you know, just everything I could do to kind of like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And the more I kind of dug into it, the more I realized that I, I was blocked off. It wasn't necessarily the people around me, you know? And so when I started being able to talk more and not be so shut down about what happened, um, you know, I think there's, there's this idea and we've been talking about it a lot on our podcast, uh, where when you continuously tell the narrative of what happened to you, you have the opportunity to heal because then you get the opportunity for empathy from those around you. I'm not talking about like a victim story where, you know, I'm like, Oh, poor me. I was right, out there right. shooting heroin. <laughs> you yeah. Know, right. Like, you know, like I tell people when they ask me how I'm doing, well, I could complain, but no one's really going to care but me about my complaints, right? <laughs> yeah. No, the, the story, that's what I realized when I when I wrote our book, Journey Fitness, is that the there's not only does it empower you, but it empowers others when you share your story and not from a place of being a victim, but but just from a place of, you know, there is life after this. And, and you know, this is what I overcame. And um you know, this is who I am too, to where you can be vulnerable with people and they can understand that you're human and have a past, but that you're also who you are today. Um, you know, I can easily say where my story began, like, you know, how did you, how did you end up in this addiction? Um, I've kind of traced it back and, and not from a point of being a victim, but I, I was very susceptible uh, to peer pressure at a young age. I mean, my father wasn't in the home from the time I was three and I was always looking for acceptance and approval and or you know what that kind of uh, behavior leads you to addiction if you're susceptible to trying things like that and you know you never know what you're going to try that gets you addicted um 
How did your story begin when it comes to addiction? Well, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. We, my family, both sides has a history of alcoholism, history of addiction. Um, you know, I, I kind of joke, I joked at a family reunion. My dad comes from a really big Irish Catholic family from Montana. So he had seven brothers and sisters, um, you know, and his, his mom actually died when he was quite young and his dad was a drinker. And, you know, they had a lot, there was abuse in the house. It was, it was not an easy place to grow up. You know, um, he was a union guy, road grader for the state of Montana, you know, real tough hunter, you know, he was just one of those guys. Right. Yeah, yeah. And um, so he didn't, he, he definitely didn't spare the rod in the family, so to speak. And so there was a lot of abuse and, you know, we, we didn't really even know about a lot of that till later in my dad's life. Uh, you know, like the, the 10 or so years before he passed away, him and I started talking more about that. And I think that was like a sort of a, you know, generational thing in their family. And my dad was a, a, a drinker when I was young. He, he stopped drinking for the most part when I got out of high school, um, but I was off and running. So we didn't really connect, you know, until I got clean and sober. And mm -hmm. so there was that relationship was lacking. He was there, but we just never really had a full, you know, connection because I spent my high school and years and early 20s to late 20s, you know, running around and being a lunatic, right? Mm -hmm. And um <clears throat> And, you know, I, I also had, was abused as a child um, by a, by a family friend. And I don't think, you know, the, you come from a family where, you know, it's like the old joke, right? Um, uh, psychotherapy doesn't work on the Irish. It's like, that's the, it was kind of the joke in the family. But the fact of the matter is it, it doesn't really work when you're so traumatized that you can't talk about it, right? So that's why it's so great that there's specialized therapies now and specialized therapists. Um, mm -hmm. And I didn't even get into trauma therapy until my, you know, shit until like eight or nine years ago. You know, I didn't even realize that was a thing. I thought, okay, I'm going to just do this, you know, this recovery work over here and it's going to fix these things over here and everything's going to be smooth, you know, and I, I was wrong. There was a lot more in there to work on, you know. Yeah. But I think, you know, being a, you know, being a child of, 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 you know, kind of young sexual abuse, um, we moved around a lot when I was a kid, like I never felt like I had roots anywhere. And then we've got this history of drinking and using, you know, that goes back generations and some mental health issues as well. Um, you know, my brother honestly is still out there. He's, you know, he's, uh, he's never really, we, we were in rehab at the exact same time when I got clean and stayed clean and, mm -hmm. He's never really, you know, he's, he's had years here and there, but it's never really stuck for him. Um, it's, you know, a lot of it, as you know, is the willingness to really dig in and uncover those things. Like you said, you traced it back. And I can say that the two biggest factors in my life was seeing all the drinking around me um, mm -hmm. because alcohol was so free and easy around me with, you know, parents and friends. And then the trauma of being abused clearly, you know, led to, uh, you know, I tried drinking and smoking weed at like 13 and I definitely reacted different than the other kids. You know, mm -hmm. it was definitely like, okay, <laughs> yeah. this is good stuff. This is like, okay, I, I like, I feel warm. I feel safe. I, you know, I can do anything. And, um, you know, it kind of, it just developed over the years to, you know, to pills and, you know, other drugs. And then eventually it was heroin. And, and, I think I'm really lucky in that I wasn't out there using during the fentanyl days because I was, I you know, I was one of those guys that, that like would build a real tolerance um, mm -hmm. and just, you know, 
day after day after day and just you know and i was a i was a shoplifter so i'd shoplift and sell and then go and and score and it was just like this you know round and round so really those two things were the biggest part of what happened to me and then i think you get out on the streets and you re-traumatize yourself you know what mm-hmm. i mean like you get into situations that are dangerous that are ugly uh, yes. I got, you got people trying to steal stuff from you on the streets. I've, I've had drug dealers, you know, pull guns on me, um, mm-hmm. you know, and then other stuff that I, that I ended up doing um, in terms of criminal behavior that leads to guilt and remorse and shame. And it's just like, then you're in, right. It's like, you can't escape and it's hard to get a break. If you're like, you don't want to get sick. Like I didn't want to get sick. Basically. That was like, I just wanted to stay well. I wanted to stay high so that I didn't have to think about all this stuff. And then it just compounds, you know, like I, I felt like by the time I got arrested the last time I had a head, so much crap in my head, uh, you know, about who I was and what I had done that it was almost impossible to get out. Right. And, and so, um, you know, I was, I was, you know, I was lucky that the, you know, the great County of San Francisco decided to give me a little bit of a pause and a break, right? Like, okay, here's your choices, buddy. You've got all these cases that you've gotten all these different courts and my choice was essentially you know head over to the cdcr for four to five years um or do a long-term rehabilitation program like delancey street or where i ended up at that time walden house so i I ended up with two two years in walden house um and the time that i had served i had to give up obviously because that's how they roll so i was really the first almost I think over six months, I was actually still in custody, but in the custody of the center. So I couldn't go out alone. I had to be out with somebody that wasn't there because of, um, you know, a criminal sentence. Um, It was a really different experience, you know, and I had at that point done so much damage um, and been doing my little tour, like I mentioned, um, that I had cases up in Portland. um, And so I had a lot to clean up. And you know, I remember I was, I was actually working in the, in the kitchen, um, at Walden house. And I, I hear Kevin McCracken come to the family room, which is like the front entrance area of the facility. And I go up there and there's, there's, uh, there's like four sheriff's deputies standing there. Um, and I'm like, what is happening? And they were like geared, like they weren't just like, you know, they weren't like plain clothes guys. They were like, you know, they were, they were, they were out picking up violations basically. Mm-hmm. And, um, they said, have you ever been to Portland? And I was like, oh shit. And apparently Oregon decided to call in my warrant. And so I got taken from Walden house back to County jail. Um, and for some reason I, and I ended up there for a few weeks, but they changed their minds and sent me back to rehab. So wow. Yeah, it was crazy. Maybe some divine intervention there. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I mean, and I, I will say, like, everybody I know from that program, and it was a huge program. I mean, we were in, in an old, like, um, uh, convent. It was, like, a connected to a Catholic church, and it was this huge building that the nuns and the priests used to live in, right? Um, I think there was, like, 100 residents in that one part of that program. And I don't know anyone, including a lot of the staff members, that have stayed clean these 24 years. You know, and so I think that that and then um, I did go up to Portland and clean that stuff up later on. But that story is really amazing, too. I got up there and um, 
we, I went to court and the judge wasn't really willing to deal. I had some, you know, sale of stolen property, even if it's a pack of gum in Oregon is a felony. Um, so you can steal something and it's petty theft and it's a misdemeanor. But the minute you turn around and try to sell it, no matter what the quantity or the, the, the price of the item, it turns into a felony because you're knowingly selling stolen property. That's their logic around that. Um, and they didn't really want to deal. So they wanted me to stay up there and do my probation up there and, and possibly serve a couple of weeks in county jail. And there was all this kind of stuff going on. And that was like September 9th, 2001. And I had to be back in court on September 11th. And we all know what happened that day. Um, yeah. So court was canceled and I came back in and the judge had, had because of everything that was going on, had second thoughts. And so I went into the, my, my lawyer met with me. Here's the craziest part. My lawyer's assistant, his legal aid, um, was the guy I went to high school with, which I had no idea he was even living in Portland. Right. So I walked into my first case conference and there's a, this guy that I grew up with sitting there at the table. He's like, right. I wasn't sure based on that mugshot, if that was even you, dude, you looked so crazy, you know, like, wow. yeah. And so essentially I got back to court for the, for that case. And the, um, the judge, it was a, it was a drug court and the judge made an example of me in a positive way. It was like, this guy's been sober almost five years. He's, you know, he's doing the right thing. Um, so we're going to give him, um, time served and release his probation completely. All you have to do is go downstairs and basically go be admitted into custody and they'll release you immediately. And that was it. That was it. I just, you know, I paid my restitution and left, you know. Oh, that's and, amazing. Yeah. That's and so, amazing. you know. What do you, I just got to ask, you know, what do you think about all that? Like, I mean, what does that do for your faith? Like, because, I mean, what are the odds, you know, hundreds of miles away that an old high school friend might be helping to work on your case, you know, that the that the judge would have a change of heart and look at you for the human being that you were today versus the one that you had. I mean, like, do you ever feel like, um, you know, life had a, a little plan for you or when you're stepping out and making the right decisions that good things happen because you're putting good into the universe? Uh, you know, what does that do for the way that you think or, you know, how you feel about life and the universe and faith and all that, you know? Well, I mean, I think the biggest thing it does you know, for me, and hopefully that story does for other people is, you know, really kind of start to build the foundation of trust, mm -hmm. you know, and other human beings that, you know, not everybody is out to get you, you know, and I know it's hard to believe that for people when you're in the midst of long-term addiction or even short-term addiction. I mean, it's, it's just, you get this feeling like nothing's ever going to be okay. And I wasn't like, I, I wouldn't call myself like a trust the process guy at that point. I was like trying to control and manage everything in my life, yeah. you know? And the fact is that I didn't have any control over this. And so I definitely think that there were, um, I was given, you know, a lot of grace at that time. And mm -hmm. so my reaction to that has been to continue to do good work in my community, you know? And because I was given an opportunity, um, I feel like it's my obligation and responsibility to do the same thing for other people. And whether that's at social imprints, whether it's a prison to employment connection in San Quentin, whether it's other volunteer work or board membership that I participate in volunteering in the community for other things like, like 
you know, my wife sponsors a family every year through an organization in San Francisco called Compass Family Services. And it's generally single moms with like multiple children. And here's the great part of that story. The full circle part of the story from Portland is that Eric, who was the, the person that was from Santa Rosa that I grew up with, donates every year to that family. Like we wow. put a little thing up on Facebook and every single year without fail, I get uh, a check, a gift card or a Venmo from him to contribute. And wow. so I, I think the message for me was really clear. Like, you know, I got that, like that little gentle knock, like, Hey, Hey, Hey buddy, this is the universe calling. Like yeah. you might want to stop using cause you're killing yourself. You know, mm-hmm. I think having sepsis and, you know, cellulitis would be a good sign for most normal people that you might want to stop, you know, 21 <laughs> days in general hospital in San Francisco isn't normal. Um, yeah. But that wasn't loud enough. That knock was kind of too gentle for me. Um, and so then I got the, Hey dude, you know, we're going to spend a little time in county jail and maybe fly you around the West coast and go back and deal with your warrants. And that, that knock wasn't, that was a little too gentle too. And then I got that last trip to county jail after, I don't even know how many times I got arrested in San Francisco. I I honestly can't even tell you. I know I had like four felonies and like 14 misdemeanors at the last time, like five failures to appear. So, you know, it wasn't going well. And had been pulled out of a stolen truck by the cops and, you know, all kinds of just crazy stuff. And the, um, that last knock was really loud. It was like, you're now alone in a building at the time that should have been condemned, which was the San Bruno jail, um, part of San Francisco County jail system in a single cell because they can't put two people in these cells because they're so beat up um, with a broken window. So the fog's coming in and you're kicking two grams of heroin, alcohol and cocaine on this yeah. little metal, you know, you know, the mattresses, you know, right, the mattresses, yeah. um, that, that <laughs> knock with, with abscesses on my arms and that, you know what I mean? Like, I was just like, it was, that knock was loud enough, you know, it's like, okay, when you're done here, we're going to send you on over to San Quentin for R and R. And then you're, we're going to decide where we're going to put you, you know, yeah. that, that knock finally was loud enough for me. That was, that was the one where the, the universe or God or whatever you believe in was like, you know, let's go dude. Okay. Enough. Like, you know, you're going to face consequences. Let me ask you this though, because what, what we've outlined here is, you know, uh, someone that tried alcohol and marijuana as early as 13 and you know, that there was some underlying trauma, but then once you start to mess around with addiction, because of all the circumstances that you put yourself in trauma leads to more trauma. And I could totally relate to some of the things you were saying, you know, I've, I've stole from my addiction. I have had uh, guns pointed at me. I've been in terrible situations and done many things that I regret. And so therefore there's more trauma. And so you get all these knocks from the universe and you're finally ready to embrace a program of recovery because maybe the pain of staying the same outweighs the pain of change. Mm -hmm. And so fine, we're ready to embrace a program, but you still have all this trauma. So let me ask you this. What was the most helpful thing in your recovery? Well, first, I want to know how many years you were in addiction. And then I want to ask you, what was the most helpful thing in your recovery that allowed you to attack the root of the problem, right? You know, this right. trauma, you know, really heal. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mentioned that I was experimenting as early as 13. I was drinking really heavily, even in high school. And then in my early twenties, just things went totally bonkers. Like 
you know, I'd been trying pills and other stuff, you know, had done a fair amount of cocaine, even young, which sorry, mom, like at 17, you know, high school prom, that kind of stuff. And I just, I never reacted to drugs and alcohol, like my friends, you know, well, I had a few that ended up being addicts as well, like my brother and some of, some of our mutual friends, but what, what happened was every time something bad happened to me, I would go harder. You know what I mean? Like break up with a girlfriend, go harder, lose a job, go harder. You know what I mean? Like it just, every single time something bad and I say bad now, which really wasn't bad. It was more experienced to live. Right. Um, happened. I would just go harder. And because I couldn't face the remorse about most of the time when relationships broke up or I lost a job or I did something like broke up the band or whatever. It was because of my own reaction to whatever was going on around me. It had nothing to do necessarily with people around me, you know, triggered something in me that created that sort of like, I'm already a failure. I'm just going to screw this up and that's fine. We're done, you know? And so what happened when I was, there was a couple of things, you know, one of them was like laying in that cell and realizing that I could have more. And that was fine. That got me through to get me into Walden House and kind of get into the program. But I was one of the few people there that like attacked this thing like really seriously. And so I was going to meetings whenever I could. I was dragging because I had to have like, you know, a buddy. I was dragging my buddies to meetings because I couldn't go out on my own. And, you know, that meant like getting on the bus and going somewhere usually, you know, on a Tuesday night or whatever. And I, um, I was, there was a point at which though, where I was about, I would say about a little, about a year clean. And I had been institutionalized the whole time. I was in jail and then I was in Walton House. And I was sitting in a meeting and I was really like having that moment where I'm like, do I want to go to the bar after this? You know, I'm finally like able to go out on my own. I don't have to answer to anybody except I have to just sign in when I get back to the house. And I swear it, it was like a, it was like, I, and most of the time in meetings, I would sit in the corner and like go outside and smoke. And, you know, like I wasn't really there yet. I wasn't there. I was like, I don't want to go back, but I'm not sure I want to be here. You know? Right. Okay. And uh, just a guy stood up and shared in that meeting and was like, it's okay to feel suicidal in recovery. Like we, there's a better way. Like we, I can show you how to do what I did to stay sober, which was essentially 12 steps. And, um, you know, I, the way he said it, and it's the craziest part about it is this guy was a, um, is it was a master sergeant in the U S army. And I had such a, a huge, like, I was just repelled from by authority. Like I didn't want to deal with, you know, and he was, he also worked in the youth juvenile hall. Like he was everything that I thought I would never want to be. Right? right. Except he had this like very concise, very clear, unwavering message. Like it's okay to not be okay, but that doesn't mean you can't move on kind of thing. Right. And I don't even remember exactly what he said, but I like, it's the first time in my life that I ever asked anybody to help me like directly, like, can you help me? I want you to be my sponsor. What can we do? And he got me right into work. It wasn't, there was no like hesitation. There wasn't like, he didn't like send me home with something to read. And that really, showed me like, okay, not only can I relate to people in here, but like, there's some action I can take immediately to go. 
you know, like this doesn't have to, this isn't some mystery thing. And I always looked at like working a program of recovery as this, like someday I'd be spiritually awakened enough to do it. And that had, had nothing to do with it. Like right. I didn't read the materials and the literature the right way, because that doesn't happen until you're in that path. Right. I'm thinking I need to be awakened to get to doing a first step or whatever. Right. No, it's the other way around. When you get done, then here you are. Right. Right. Right, and so right. what happened as a result of that, I mean, and I had, you know, I had plenty of heartache and sadness. And, and even after that, where, you know, I was, I got married and divorced and I have an older child with that woman. She's actually since passed away. She was, she had been sober 27 years. You know, she grabbed a newcomer, me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, That's the 13th step. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, that, that was the pivotal moment right there. That when I met, when I met this guy, I, I will say that that was the life-changing moment for me because I just heard something that I'd never really heard before. And here was the bigger part of it. It wasn't even that what he was saying, it was that I believed it. Yeah. And so that leap of belief and faith happened in that moment. And that's really like what starting that path is all about. Right. I mean, basically sure. we can't do it. Like I can't, I need to, I need to ask somebody for some help because I literally cannot do this myself. Yep. So, you know, that's yeah. the moment. To have over 10 years of addiction and then you're seeing that there could be a better way and you're dealing with all this trauma. And somebody stands up at a meeting and says something that hits you. And from there, you start to embrace the program of recovery and you're working these 12 steps. And if somebody that was listening right now is like, yeah, I've heard maybe of the 12 steps, but I don't know what they are. And I'm not asking you for you to, for you to recite every one of them. No. Right? But like, <laughs> how would you describe the 12 steps to somebody? Like, because I think that they apply to so many different areas of life. You don't even have to be an addiction to use them. You can just use them to be a better person, you know? So how would you yeah. describe the 12 steps? Well, I'm, I'm going to do the standard disclaimer. I do not speak for any 12 step program. This is just right, my experience. Sure. Okay. And so my, my, my experience is that they really, and, and I've done, obviously I've talked about the other stuff I've done since, you know, trauma therapy, family therapy, I've, you know, all kinds of stuff. I think one of the things that really struck me once I started down this path of being more serious about my recovery or actually being deadly serious about my recovery, like knowing this is like life, this is death over here, um, was something that um, was written in a, in a book um, in AA. And it's basically that, that uh, the combination of, of like self-analysis or, you know, as, um, uh, religions like to call it, you know, um, uh, confession, which is, you know, the, the fifth step, the, mm -hmm. the combination of those things like self-analysis, confession, and prayer and meditation is an unshakable foundation for life. And mm -hmm. that you, that doesn't mean that you need to be religious. And that's the most important piece is mm -hmm. that there, there's, there's a way to do this. And that's why I like things like, um, you know, there's like the, the Dharma meetings and there's other meetings that aren't, you know, based in, you know, more sort of like Western religion. Um, and also I like a lot of the people in 12 step that talk about spirituality. I think that's, you know, because we want to be as open a tent as possible, right? We want to be the big tent. We want to be like, whatever you're coming in with, we got you. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so for me, what it really was, was the, was 
starting to release the fear of really being in this world, you know, like getting that fear out. And, you know, the four step, there's a formula that Bill wrote. There's also other ways to do it. Um, but it's really what it comes down to is, is identifying what you resemble at because underlying that problem is generally nine and a half or 10 times out of 10 is fear of some kind or another. And how that manifests is different for everybody. And me, it manifests in guilt and remorse and really the inability to move forward in certain aspects of my life. And, you know, I'll say like a good example of that, and I'm going to bring it back to social imprints because that's how we met is that I was working in Sacramento at a big screen printing production shop. And I was part owner in that company. And I ran into Jeff, my, my co-founder and the guy that had hired me at, at Ashbury Images just randomly one day in Whole Foods on Franklin Street in San Francisco. And he, we hadn't seen each other in a few years. He was in Europe consulting, doing similar social enterprises. And I was taking the train or, you know, I had an apartment in Sacramento. My wife at the time was pregnant and I wasn't totally satisfied. I love the guy I worked with up there, but I didn't like the fact that there was no social aspect of what we were doing. It was like kind of eating away at me. And Jeff said, what, you know, basically all he said was, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm working, I'm the operations, you know, lead in this giant shop and we're pumping out stuff for like major league baseball and bands. And it's cool. We do cool designs, but I'm, you know, I'm not feeling my, I'm not feeling that foundation. Like it's not, this isn't for me where it's at. And you know, looking back on it, I probably could have handled things a little differently, you know, and obviously, you know, when you break up a business partnership, it, it's almost like a marriage in some ways, it's complicated. Um, good news is that my my former business partner and I are friends again, and we like work on stuff together. And he's one, he's like one of my favorite people. So we got all that stuff got amended. Um, but I was feeling really unable to do the things I wanted to do. And it was a real, like, I had to really dig deep to start social imprints with Jeff because I had to leave a comfortable job where I own part of the company and take this leap of faith again. And, you know, and he as well, I mean, he basically wasn't working. He was consulting up until that point. And he had to, we, we both went into credit card debt to start this thing um, and really had to like trust that this was going to work out. And I don't think with, with, um, without all the work that I had done and I, you know, I'm still a work in process. 24 years is nothing. You know what I mean? Like, honestly, it's, right. it's, it's less than half my life right now. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, I, I turned 52 in September. So it's less than half my life. And right. so, you know, the work continues, but had I not had that baseline of like, just continuously surrendering um, the things that were kind of like jamming me up, um, I never would have been able to make that leap. And so what has occurred since then, we've, you know, we've hired a lot of people over the years. I mean, right now, I think we have like 37 employees. Um, you know, we did 20 million in sales last year. Um, we do profit sharing and it's looking like our employees are going to get like a $12,000 check this year each. You know nice. what I mean? Like, nice. so had I not been able to do the, had I not done the work and the work is different for everybody. Like you're, I, my, only advice to people that are going to meetings or going to, you know, church groups or whatever it is that is making them feel the community part of it is, you know, sort of like when you go home, try to re-listen to what you heard. Like, it, it, and I know this is really hard because a lot of times I would sit in meetings, I couldn't hear anything. So I'm so like, Ugh. 
why am I here? You know, but if you can kind of go back and rewind the, where you've been and rewind that last experience with people in recovery, wherever it is for you. And again, 12 step isn't the way for everybody. There's a ton of ways to do this, but the biggest thing is, and every, every, I think everyone would agree with this is like building that community, finding people that you trust, people that you relate to, holding them close. You know, you, you're feeling bad call them, you know, you're feeling bad, go have dinner with somebody. You're feeling bad, go have coffee with somebody. You're feeling bad, take a deep breath before you make that decision, you know, and know that you're cared about because it, it is amazing when you make that call, like even the last, like, so my, and I'm jumping around a little bit here, but I'm trying to tie this into what's been going on recently. Um, you know, we're, we're starting a nonprofit at Social Imprints. I'm sort of in a flux area where I'm like doing projects and doing a lot of the PR stuff like this for the company. Um, so I'm, I'm in a place now where I'm also kind of like taking a leap of faith. Is this nonprofit going to happen? Or, you know, this is going to be my new thing, you know? So it's like these, these things never end. Um, yeah. my, my ex-wife passed away in September and I have a 14 year old daughter, you know, all of a sudden it's full-time with us. That was part-time with us previously. And all of my wife's friends are, were in recovery. I mean, she was, my ex-wife's friends were in recovery. She was, you know, many, many years sober. And so like, I'll text them from that, from time to time, like, Hey, you knew Nicole really well. What would she have done in this situation? Like I'm trying to deal with, you know, my daughter and I'm not sure, you know, and like, when you ask for that, people are so willing to offer the help, you know, I mean, it's, it's there. And I think that's the thing. Like, you don't know how it's going to show up. Mine showed up in a, a you know, <laughs> A sergeant, you know, in the U.S. Army Reserve. You know what I mean? Like you don't know. You never know how it's going to show up. So right. you, you just you have know. to. You have to. Uh, you have to push. <laughs> push is an acronym that I like to use, and it's uh, persist until something happens. You know, yeah. you're in the room and you're open to it. And I, I like the formula that you gave, and I just want to take a second because you know the the question about you know how you deal with trauma on top of trauma and you know what's going on and and you gave us a good formula and I think it applies I don't care if you're in addiction right now but you said self-analysis like you know it's kind of like what junk am I carrying and then confession like you know how can I how can I release this junk even if I'm just going to confess it to God my higher power or actually make amends to somebody that I hurt you know and you did even reference that relationship with your partner um original partner is one that had been amended so i can see where that's a focus in your life mm -hmm. to not carry junk right if i can fix i'm going to fix it. if i need release i need to release it through that process of self-analysis and confession and then prayer and meditation you know i feel like your story is one to where when we do good good things happen when we do bad bad things happen there's mm -hmm. a two plus two formula right like i mean it's mm -hmm. like you know that's how that goes and uh I want to understand, I want the audience, I want people that may be listening, they're in a position of authority right now, and they have to look at that drug addict and decide, does that drug addict go away for years? Or does that drug addict get another chance? You know, I, I definitely don't want this episode to end without kind of highlighting, you know, your life after recovery, like after you start embracing this program, there's so much good that you've done. And you know, the, the people that are passing decisions, about whether or not to lock somebody up and, and, you know, potentially, uh, you know, stop their life, you know, not mm -hmm. give them that chance at rehabilitation. Uh, they need to know, you know, how, how it worked for you when you came home, you know, what, what is, 
uh, if you could kind of describe your life and the steps that you took so that maybe somebody can learn something from that and maybe encourage somebody that's in that situation. Um, can you tell us a little bit about like, okay, you know, you go through this program of recovery and, and now, you know, we've gone all, all sorts of different, you're doing great <laughs> things. I mean, gosh, so, I don't even know where to begin between so, social inference and quitting. Yeah. Start a nonprofit. I mean, this guy my, is not the guy that would be before a judge, you know, not, I mean, not now. Right. Yeah. I hope, you know, I hope, that, <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I, I have, you know, it's funny because stuff comes up all the time and, you know, I have, I have, a, have been really working on this specific issue over the last, you know, few years, especially with the trauma therapy is like, how do I react to things that are kind of put in front of me and how defensive am I going to get and how, you know, so just kind of watching my body temperature as a whole, whether it's, you know, whether I'm getting that little like tingle on the back of my neck, I can start to feel it in my jaw, you know, like I'm going to get angry here. And, you know, there was a time even in my career working in promotional products and screen printing where vendors didn't want to talk to me because I was just a, you know, I was, I was mean. I was just like, you know, I just wasn't the nicest guy at that time in my life. Like if somebody messed something up, I just couldn't like refrain from telling them, you know, and that's changed a lot. I mean, I, they still will ask me to call vendors at work if there's a big problem because I can usually work it out, but it's not like it was where I use a sledgehammer for every problem. And um, I think, you know, having kids has softened me a lot, especially a daughter. Um, and my son is very, I have a, a five-year-old son who's like the sweetest, kindest kid. He's just like, so, and they've never seen me high, you know? Right. Um, so, and, and my wife is like a superhero, you know? I mean, I don't know how she keeps it together because we're all, all of us are kind of all over the place. And she's like, sure. the, she's like the, the pillar of stability in the house. And, um, but I think, you know, one of the things that's kept me going is learning over and over again, that lesson of asking for help and getting it, you know, like I can't do this alone. I need some help. Like I'm a little lost on this project. I need to bring in some extra resources, whatever it is. Um, but my life right now is pretty, it's been pretty simplified, you know, COVID helped with that a bit. Um, I have a, I'm sitting in an office that we built during the, during the pandemic and, so that I have a space to work that's quiet on my property. Um, you know, so social imprints, I'm, like I said, I'm doing a bunch of special projects for, we're doing some security stuff and other stuff around, you know, employee engagement. Um, and then um, San Quentin is like, I can't even tell you how much I get out of that. It would be, we could spend a whole show just on that. It's such a incredible experience. Um, and then I have the podcast that I do and I love them. You know, I love talking about mass incarceration. My co-host is a Pulitzer Prize winner who was a former ju juvenile lifer. And I think you should probably have him on the show because he's a hell, it's a hell of a story. So I'm Suave already Gonzalez. thinking about part yeah. two. Is you tell yeah. me about the San Quentin and this? Yeah, uh, yeah. Suave, Suave Gonzalez is his name. And then I do another show that's more fun. I was a punk rocker as a kid and I toured and did played in bands. Um, and uh, when I was younger and I just like, so I talk to old punks that are doing cool stuff now that inspire me, you know, like the, and that show's called Adulting Well. And, you know, I try to keep my circle tight and close. You know, I'm always like, I always am open to meeting new people and hanging out and having fun. But like, I have like a core group of people that I like really lean on when, when, you know, when I need it and starting right here at home, like my wife is my best friend and we, we work on a relationship all the time and it's not perfect. You know, it's hard. It's hard to be married with two kids and both have careers, you know? Yeah. So 
Um, it's we're working on it all the time, you know, and that's the thing. It never ends. Right. But I get to enjoy more, more, more moments now. Like if we go on vacation, I get to enjoy, you know, I get to go to Hawaii once in a while. You know what I mean? Like, I can, come on, man. I was, I was dreaming about having an indoor place to live at one point in my life. Right. <laughs> well, I know. And that's what I want to highlight too, from a, a guy who stole for his addiction to a guy that has 37 employees and we're working on giving each an extra bonus of a $12,000 paycheck. You're making a difference in this world. I want to ask you, uh, I want to kind of uh, change your question to what do you look for when you're hiring at-risk people? Do you look for, as you just described, somebody that's willing to ask for help? Uh, do you look for somebody that's in the process of self-analysis and confession and you know just trying to make amends in life? What qualities tell you that this is somebody I want to take a chance on and bring into my company? Yeah, I mean that's it's a tough one. We we've made a ton of hiring mistakes over the years, so I definitely not always the strong suit. <laughs> but um I think more recently what's happened is um I actually don't do much of the hiring. I you know, I cuz I get real caught up in people's stories and want to like rescue them. I have a little bit of a savior complex with that stuff. You know, and I'm willing to admit it. Like I want I want everybody to be okay. So um, quite honestly, for me, it's been letting go of that process and letting people that are more like, you know, make better decisions, I guess, around it. But when I think the, the ultimately what Jeff and the team that does, depending on what team someone's being hired for, that does the hiring is it's not necessarily what people bring in that they know. A lot of times it's better if they don't have a lot of experience in mm -hmm. our industry, um, it's more of like that desire to learn and grow. And when we have people like that, that have great industry experience, but also want to learn sort of the social imprints way, it's like, it's a really good combination. And um, a lot of our directors or higher level account managers or, you know, um, are, are people that have been, have like been with the company a while that are now in management positions are homegrown and they, they didn't necessarily come in knowing a lot and they were just really willing to learn and willing to do something different. And we're, it's a different kind of company. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. It's like, you know, people looked at us like we were crazy when we were raising money at first, like you're going to hire who to do what, you know? And because it's, we started off with jet, we didn't have a warehouse. We didn't have any blue collar jobs. It was all office admin. We were a distributor. So we, we just, bought other people's products and put prints on them. You know what I mean? And contracted everything. And so <clears throat> what has happened is we have an incredibly high retention rate. I mean, I think our, our average now is like seven or eight years, which is yeah. crazy in our industry. That is just nuts. So high. Um, and people come in and they kind of learn our system. We have our own um, ERP that runs the business, which is like a enterprise software. Um, and they learn how we want them to deal with our clients and they either buy in or they don't. And it's really simple. And um, it's not that if they don't right away, we don't give them an opportunity. It's just that you, we can usually tell now within a, like a few months, like this person's all in or they're not, you know? Yeah. Well, giving them a chance is one thing, but also identifying somebody that's willing to learn and grow. I've certainly had problems myself as an entrepreneur and Mm -hmm. The problems that I usually have with people to where it is going to end in a, a termination or them leaving 
is that they are uncoachable. They don't want to learn, you know, but I mean, it, maybe that is a sign not only for your company that this person is going to be a good hire, but that they're on the right track in life, that they're like, you know, I, I need to do something different. Teach me, yeah. right? You know, that somebody's yeah. actually open that there could be a better way. And what is it, you know, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, hey, I'm looking for a job and I'm willing to learn. Uh, you know, I'm looking for a better life and I'm yeah. willing to learn, right? You know, exactly. Very good. Well, I think I think the biggest thing for me is that I've learned over the last few years is my limits too. Like I can't do everything and I'm not good at everything. I'm just not. You know, I'm really good spokesman for the company. Um, I'm not a I'm not a project manager. Like it's not my thing. And you know, and so you know, for me doing doing PR and shows and coming on and getting interviewed is a real comfort zone for me. I love like I studied radio in college. I love it. I love this medium, you know, and I love the the opportunity and the platform for messages to get out there that are important. Um, you know, and, and so I've got a tight little career I work with on shows too. And, and I just really appreciate people that are trying to get positive messages out as well. Um, you know, the company at this point, and I'm not, I'm not like a, I'm not what would be considered a regular employee. I'm not a supervisor. I, I, my, the CEO, Jeff, who's my, my business partner, I started this with basically says, here's the things I want you to be working on right now that are going to help the company. And he hands them over. And that's great for me. Like, I, I'm not going to deny it. Like I can do sales because I'm charming and all the other stuff, but like, it's better that other people are doing it that have better follow through. You know, it's like, I gotta, I gotta really pay attention to what my strengths are, you know, and otherwise things come unglued. And so the company could easily, you know, and I, I don't say this to demean myself, but the people that we've hired and trained and worked with for all these years are so good at their jobs. Like I actually probably, other than these projects I'm working on, I wouldn't really need to be there day to day. I mean, Jeff runs the company really well. Obviously we're incredibly successful. You know, there's things like this that I'm the only one that can do because I have the deepest knowledge of our mission. But, you know, this is like, it's a really amazing place that has really grown into its own living entity. You know, wow. and and I'm glad that I was part of the 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 roots of that, like really. And I'm really grateful for all the years of of being there. But that like the team that does everything there, I, I want to give them all a huge shout out because they are incredible, incredible, hardworking, dedicated, and on point with our clients. You know, isn't that a great lesson that you just talked about? I mean, you you said you mentioned 24 years is short for your recovery, you know. And that you work in your strengths or everything comes unglued. Isn't that an aspect of the people's recovery for which you hire is mm-hmm. to help them find a strength that they can cultivate into a passion that they're good at, you know, and it's, uh, and you're hiring people that don't have the same strengths as you. Otherwise it wouldn't be a very good company. Right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, another little lesson there on recovery uh, for yourself and for others is to, is to focus on your strengths and cultivate them, you know, find mm-hmm. your passions and pursue them. Uh, really good. So how can people, uh, get more of you? Tell us how to, you know, <laughs> death by incarceration. Yep. Uh, just um, talk about so, so we've got, I've got death by incarceration and adulting well podcast and, uh, social imprints has, uh, a show coming out. That's going to be little like 15 to 30 minute interviews with people in the promotional products industry that are doing things that are making a difference, whether it's sustainability, um, you know, minority owned businesses, giving, getting the word out there that there's, uh, there's, there's people out there doing good in our industry. 
um, and that'll be Making a Social Impact is the name of that show. It's coming out actually today or tomorrow, um, trying to finish some stuff up on it. And then, um, you know, uh, Prison to Employment Connection is the organization that I work with in San Quentin. We're always looking for donations. Um, if people are in the Bay Area and they have a, uh, a company that um, is a fair chance employer, uh, reach out to me. It's just prison to number two ec.org. Um, I would love to have you come in. We're the only organization in the 35 prisons in the state of California that has at the end of our sessions an employer day where we bring in fair chance employers to meet the guys, do mock interviews, talk to them about what employment opportunities are out there when they get out. Um, and it's just a great program. Um, and then look for our, the new nonprofit for social imprints. We're going to be doing apprenticeships in association with city college of San Francisco. And so we're going to be hiring people that are in their business track programming that have, uh, generally are there because they're on probation or parole and they're, they're working on, or they've had other, you know, criminal history of some kind and they're working to get their education. So, a lot of stuff happening and, um, you know, and if you want to buy swag, buy it from social imprints. <laughs> okay, yeah, there it is. Awesome. Very cool. Well, Kevin, any final words for our audience? No, I just want to thank you so much for having me on. I, I, you know, this is such a, you know, Travis, your show is just so inspiring and I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that the team at Teak turned me on to it because they're, you know, they're out there doing hustling for us. And, and now I get, I, I'm getting like new shows to listen to as well as, you know, uh, as well as like coming on and, and talking about all the stuff we're doing. So thank you. Thanks for doing this. It's, it's really good stuff, man. Well, thank you. And thank you for your kind words. And thank you for sharing your story. Uh, it's so inspiring. And that's what I want people to, to be inspired from it and realize, you know, what a difference, you know, you may be looking at somebody in your life right now that's struggling, but they could end up just like Kevin making a big difference and dent in this universe. And so let's just keep giving them a chance and keep on praying and keep hope alive. Thank you, Kevin. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks for listening, Overcomer Nation. Make sure if you haven't already, give us a five-star rating. Make sure that you share this and subscribe so you can see all of our future content. That's right. And if you'd like to be a guest on a future show, go to overcomers-podcast.com. If you're interested in our franchise opportunities with Journey 333, then go to www.journeyfitness333.com. And finally, if you like what you heard today and you feel like you're somebody that needs a bit more coaching, go to travisbarnes.com. Yeah!